Welcome to the Richmond All Like It podcast. This week, I am speaking with AJ Alfo. AJ is a machine learning engineer, data scientist, and a writer. AJ has also amassed 70,000 followers on his YouTube channel called Emporium, where he discusses machine learning topics and explores different aspects and techniques of deep learning and machine learning. In our conversation, we explore the various ways AJ has gained AI and data science knowledge, and we also touch on his experiences of buying and interviewing for a data science role. In this conversation, me and AJ touch on topics such as technical writing, inspiration, content creation, YouTube, and more. I'm Richmond Alake, and one person at a time, I'm exploring the stories of the humans behind AI and data. I hope you enjoy this conversation and come away a better practitioner. Thank you for listening. Your YouTube channel has grown to over 60,000 subscribers. You have over 100 high quality machine learning videos. So you're doing really well on the data content creation side of things, but I'm going to explore the entirety of, of AJ today. So my first question is going to start with, when did you write your first line of code? Gosh, I feel like now I'm like, now the interrogation has started. I should be nervous about this. Oh gosh. It's like, how much are you going to uncover of my life? But it's a pleasure to be here, Richmond. Thank you for having me and for the wonderful words and doing your research on my videos. I'm so glad that my Transformer videos have provided the, the usefulness that they have to you and hopefully everybody else listening to. Please do check it out if you're listening. Anyways, <laughs> so sorry, your question was what, when did I write my first line of code, correct? Yes. All right. So I'd say it's, this kind of goes back to seventh grade when I was studying in India. So I was about a 12 year old wee little boy studying in India. I think it was a computer science course where they were teaching us HTML. I remember it was, it was amazing. The way that they taught HTML was on a whiteboard. So they write all like the code on the whiteboard. And I felt like I had absolutely no idea what I was doing when they were writing all of that stuff. I was like, why, why do we have angle brackets here? It's like, isn't this like English, but it doesn't look like English. So yeah, 12 years old. I don't think, would you, would I like it? Probably not at the time, but I mean, here I am today as like a machine learning engineer slash data scientist. So who am I to complain at this point? Yeah. So writing code by hand on a board is how you started at the age of 12. That is very young, as in pretty much younger than most. So you didn't like it initially. So what got you interested? What got me interested? Let's see. I would say I wasn't like truly invested in it until I got to maybe 11th grade, because 11th grade is when I actually started like taking formal courses on computer science. And I actually understood what was going on using a computer. You know, it was just pretty, it, just the art of even like programming the very simple, simple things, you know, like simple patterns of like display one, then one, two on the next line, one, two, three. And I thought, obviously, does that have any practical real world scenario use case? Probably not, but is it fun? It was. <laughs> and that's kind of how I, how I delved into the world of programming that we see today. Can I talk about the education system within India? Cause it's amazing that at 12 years old, you were taught computer science. That is the earliest I've ever seen any sort of a uh, child learn computer science in any sort of a nation that I've come across or anyone I've spoken to. What, could you speak into that as in why are they getting most people so early within this computer science, within this topic? 
Well, in India in general, I feel like there is a huge kind of, not I wouldn't say shift, but it's always been this way where a lot of people have kind of like, they're engineers. They're in STEM fields, typically. Like if you ask most people in India, at least the way that they study, they if they are doing something else, like maybe starting a business or getting into the arts right now, chances are, I'm pretty sure if you ask them, they would have had like some sort of engineering degree in the background. Yeah, They probably do. And so I think because of this like very strong influence of technology and engineering in the nation as a whole, that, you know, we're kind of seeing places like in schools where we're just learning it earlier because it's probably and most likely going to be useful for our careers in the future anyways. So, I mean, that that's just like one thought that I've had about like why so early. But even these days, I feel like, you know, in general, even in the world, there's like, there's an introduction to like the concept of algorithms from a very, very young age with like this idea of gamification of learning, where now these games are just designed in a way to teach you so many things, especially like, you know, you see these kids at the age of like seven or eight on these apps that start actually teaching you step-by-step algorithms, essentially. It's like, hey, this is like algorithms that you learn in, in a college degree, but here they are kind of learning a gamified version of that at the age of six or seven. Yeah. So, I've yeah. come across those sort of products, like little toys you can buy for kids to actually develop that sort of problem-solving mindset from a very young age. So since we're on the topic of education, let's talk about your educational background. So could you provide some insight into your master's and bachelor's? So I was actually studying in India from sixth grade till the end of my undergraduate degree. My undergraduate degree was in computer science. And then after my computer science degree, that was like a four-year program that I was there for, I came to America. That was about 2017. So five years from now, five years ago. And I did my master's program at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, United States. And it's here that I did a master's in data science, or it's rather a master's in computer science that has a specialization in data science. Essentially, some computer science courses, and I took a lot of math courses because I wanted to build that mathematical foundation that is required for a lot of parts of like the background in in machine learning and all these machine learning models too. So I thought it would be super useful and turns out it was. Here I am now as a data scientist. So I think it's pretty good. What, what influenced that decision to actually take a master's in data science? So when I was an undergrad, this is kind of like now where you, you asked me like, where I, when did I start to write code? That was the age of 12. But when did I actually start to get into the field of machine learning? I would say it's more in the junior year of college. So that's about my third year in university, an undergrad. And it was at this time that I was working under a professor. Uh, I was doing some research under that professor. And it, it was here that I started, you know, when you all start, you, you kind of like start with, okay, import scikit-learn and just have all the wonders of like just a few lines of code, spin up a model. Amazing. It's great. But then when you want to actually write a dissertation on it, you really need to understand what's going on. And it's at this point that I realized, all right, I do not know much of the math that goes beyond any of these machine learning principles. Like I can use it in packages and like for building up programs, but that's about the limit of my knowledge. And I wanted to really dive much deeper into this field because I really did like it at the time. And I really could see like what machine learning was capable of, like when I was in my undergraduate degree. And it's at that point that I was like, after my fourth year, I was like, okay, I know what I kind of want to do, 
but I want to acquire the resources, the tools, and the knowledge to do it, to better understand it in general. And so I thought a master's degree would be very useful in the field. You mentioned you were working under a professor doing research in your undergrad. What was that about? That You must have been like an outstanding learner for the professor to take you under the wing to help with the research. Well, thank you. I am glad you assumed that. Let's just say that that is true <laughs> for the purposes of this argument. And yeah, that, that research was actually, it was about scanning brain images. They're called like bold fMRI images and trying to understand at least the shape of what an object that a person is looking at. So different parts of the brain are actually activated when you're looking at different types of objects. And you can kind of model the entire, the entire problem as this like overall a classification problem of like, okay, is this person looking at a chair? Is this person looking at a pencil? Is this person looking at, you know, some other object? I think that was a good start, at least at the undergraduate level for all of this stuff. But yeah, that was pretty fun. I also did like another dissertation, which was on, it was basically a speech to text translator for this regional language called Kannada. That's a language that is spoken by one state in India called Karnataka. I remember like just creating that was just so much fun because I had to create my own data because data for that is just not available online. So I would like literally to get, I had none of this setup. I had no microphone at all, right? So I would basically whisper on the side of my MacBook to, to make sure that there was as little audio distortion as possible. And I recorded like what, like a few hundred sentences just speaking in that way even though I'm like not really fluent in speaking the language. And I was like, oh, that was just pretty fun to read about the language, to understand the different parts of your mouth are used to pronounce different types of words. I guess they call it like this, the pho phoneme tree, basically the way that sounds are produced in that language. And I kind of built that too from scratch. That along with understanding, well, there is the machine learning aspect of it, but honestly, what was super interesting is just like, it was fun to just learn about the language, gather the data and just like, do anything I could with it before obviously piping it to like a you know, machine learning model. Yeah. So these were like the two major projects that really got me going in the fields of like machine learning, especially like propelled me into grad school as well. So in terms of the two projects you're working on, the speech to text language problem you're working on, it sounds like you were breaking new ground in terms of the data set there, right? So has that data set been picked up by anyone else trying to solve a similar problem? I actually didn't like publish that data set even at the time. I, I, I think I was just trying to use it for my own case. So I didn't really bother publishing it. Now I know that, okay, there's actually medium. There's actually people who would be, you know, would obviously want to, to use this kind of data. So it didn't occur to me at the time to just publish it, but yeah, it was just, I guess you could say it was just like a fun project for me to, to just record in my bedroom under a sheet. And the first project you, you mentioned working on professor, did that get published at some conference or? It was rejected by a publication. So no, I tried to get it published, but it was at that time too, when I was writing this paper that I, I was more focused also on coming to America because it was, this was like in my fourth year of if my final year of university. And I was kind of focused on so many other things too. So it was like, at, at a certain point, I was like, okay, I kind of had to to come back here to America. And I started like shifting my focus elsewhere after that first like rejection. But that said, I do have like a published publication of the previous one, the one I mentioned about the brain images. 
Okay. So that that one actually did get published. I think it was in more of a local conference, though. Yeah, it was with IEEE. Yeah, if I if I do recall, that was like sometime in 2017, I want to say. So that was like the first one. And then my second one did not go through. So you have experience actually writing papers and submitting them to conferences and working on the professor. Did you ever consider after your master's taking a PhD in machine learning or data science? I did think of that like in the very, very beginning. Like I was in university, like undergrad. And I was thinking, okay, what are the chances of, you know, me doing this, you know, what are the five-year program? They have these like MS and PhD programs together. Like, why not do that? And then I was also thinking on the side of like, okay, one, that'd be fun, fun in a very, very loosely turned way, because I know how devastating it could be for some people doing their PhD, basically everybody doing their PhD, but more, but even more so like financially too, I was like, all right, it takes like an additional, like half a decade of me trying to to put literally like my entire mind together around these concepts. And in that five years time, I can literally like start building something in my life. So it was also like a question of time. Like, is it worth it at that point where it probably is? I'm sure it is worth it, but I just like made the decision to not go forward with it. And instead to focus on basically like what I wanted to do, like I like education, I like teaching and I wanted to spearhead my entire more career driven or professional life in, in that direction. What is it like studying at the University of California? What it's like, it's fun. I guess like if you ask different people, it's you get, you get like very, very different answers. And I'm specifically talking about the University of Southern California, which is a very specific institution. And not like University of California, which is like a collection of institutions in, in California, but specifically for the University of Southern California. Overall, I could say I went in there with a purpose of like, I want to know more about the field of machine learning and also make professional connections the way I can, you know, that because connections are, are so much, especially here in the United States that they can get you, they can get two places. And honestly, both of those checkpoints were checked in, in my opinion. So I think it was definitely worth it, which I feel like you just need to have a clear goal when you get into a master's program. Like, what are you expecting out of it? And at the end, did you achieve what you wanted to achieve? And I feel if you're able to weight those two, whatever your expectations are with the outcome, then I think you'll know your answer of whether you're satisfied or not, or whether the degree was worth it or not. I would say like your mindset going into the masters was actually quite advanced because you're the first person that I've come across that's gone into a masters thinking about networking as opposed to just focusing on the education and the, the, the technical aspect of it, right? You were thinking about who can I connect with? I was thinking about this for a very specific reason too, because so when I was in India, I remember I built this system. So it was like a staff, a teacher appraisal system or a staff appraisal system for a university, for like the university I was studying at. But after they had their utility of it, they said that you could do whatever you want with the system itself. And I was like, okay, I'll sell it. <laughs> and I tried to go to different universities in, in and around, you know, the city, at least where I live, because I didn't have a car. I, I, I was limited to how far I can I could commute, but I was going to other universities in the area, trying to talk to these, you know, these university heads to see if they had a use for that system. And I, unfortunately, I felt like I was quite underballed in terms of pricing 
a lot of it probably because like, oh, you look so young, you're a student, you know, he's going to be fine with like 10,000 rupees. And I was like, okay, 10,000 rupees for an entire system. And they want me to set it up completely. And I'm like, 10,000 rupees is like, you divide that by 70 and that's how many dollars it is. So that's like a few hundred dollars essentially. Yeah. And they only want to pay me like a couple hundred dollars for that huge, you know, this was like a huge, like, it's not, it, it, yeah, it's not like a small little script that I wrote for them. Right. It's, it's a pretty big product. And I, I knew like, all right, you, you, there is like one way to underball, like, you know, just go lowball someone, but this is a little too atrocious. Right. So I just didn't at all sell that product at all. And instead I just made a video, I just open sourced it. So I just like put it on GitHub. And then I, I made a video on it. I think it's my very first or second video and just like showcasing what, you know, what that product does. It's kind of like a product to demo and a screen demo walkthrough. And it was, and it was then that I actually, that's how I kind of started my YouTube channel, admittedly. <laughs> so it, it was here that I was able to, this is also kind of why like Code Emporium became a thing. I wanted to be a showcase and Emporium for my code. Like this kind of project, like these staffs of the teacher appraisal system that I built and hence the name. It's been off into something great. I'm grateful for it, but because I felt like talking to some people just, you know, from a business to business standpoint, like I am talking to them as like a person who's trying to sell you a product, right? Maybe I just didn't know the right people. Maybe it would have been easier if I had like better connections to people who I can be like, hey, do you know somebody who you think would be interested in this product? I, I would have loved to have somebody to ask those questions to. At that point, I was like, okay, connections it is. I need to make connections. I need to meet people who, who like, they don't have to be a mentor necessarily to me, but having a mentor figure is always good. At least just people I can talk to so that I understand what the market is. I understand like my own value, my own worth. I understand the products that I'm building have value. Otherwise, you know, I don't want to end up in a situation where I'm just like giving things out for free when I shouldn't be. Yeah. But yeah, overall, that's kind of why I was looking into like meeting people a lot as soon as I got into the United States. I would say you understood your value to not obviously give that tool away for 10,000 rupees, wherever it will be in Dublin's. You understood that this was a, a, a worthwhile tool. You spent time building this and you were being undersold here. And just to clarify, this was not even a license to use the tool. This was just to have the code, have it all. Yeah, pretty much. I, I just wanted to get rid of setup. I mean, I just wanted to see if I could make money off of it, to be honest. This is my first time that I'd ever done something like this. This was, what was I like 19, 20? So I, yeah, so I was just like, you know what? Let me just try something out. Obviously like probably the tactics that I used were probably not the best. I just like Hail Mary just like went for it like that. You got to start somewhere. Obviously there were definitely mistakes that were made on my part, but you know, you start somewhere and you learn. The staff appraisal system sounds like it could be part of a feature of a wider HR tool. So there's definitely business for this. And at 19 years old, you had that mindset, that business mindset. And obviously what came out of this was your YouTube channel, like you just mentioned. So that is a massive, it's still a massive win. There's still massive value. So let's, I want to talk about your internship. You undertook an internship at a place called Lending Home. Can you talk into that? Yeah, sure. So Lending Home is a company. I think they rebranded to Kiavi. I think that's what their new name is. But this company in general, it, well, they are lenders. So when you're looking to, whether you're a first home buyer or like you're a fix and flipper, you're looking for a loan, Lending Home is the place to go. And it's over there that I 
I was an intern, I think in 2018, which was the summer in between my two years of graduate school. And it was then that it's basically based in San Francisco, California. So it's a, just like a short flight up uh, from where I am right now. And it's over there that I took an internship as a data science intern. I was really like thrilled that I got a data science internship because sometimes it's, it's just really hard to come by, especially like out the gate. I was fortunate enough to actually get a position like that. And the work there was pretty fun too. I was really drenched into, I'd say, thr thrusted into the world of like analyses. I think everything was new to me, right? Like just the idea of using any form of data with, with industry was a foreign concept to me at that time, right? That's when I like really started getting into just like analyzing data a lot. And then also building my own machine learning model for actual practical use cases in an industry. And it was there I built like this, I guess you could say it's like a churn predictor. You can chalk it up to that, essentially. So it's just, will a customer basically, you know, our customers are people who are looking for loans. Like, will they come to us again within the next three months? So it's kind of like building, building a system kind of like, but yeah, I'd say even more than the machine learning part there, what was interesting and fun was just like understanding how to explore data and understanding like, okay, this is what data is in the industry. This is what it means to you. This is how messy it can get. This is how weird it is to deal with these, this kind of information where, you know, it's so different from coming from an academic background where it's like, everything is kind of a, it's nice. It's, it's a data set, right? It's uh, nice and tailored, very nice and kept well. So yeah, that was, that was actually probably the big thing that I learned there as well as of course, practical uses of machine learning, which eventually landed my first full-time job. You went uh, for an internship in between the sum of your masters. Why did you do that? Was that like a strategic move just so you could become employable after you finished your masters? Or yeah, I think like, yeah, I just wanted to, well, I have three months or not three months. I have like, what, two and a half months. That, that's like a period of time we just have off in university. There's nothing there to do. And again, I came with a mindset of making connections and I wanted to meet as many people as possible. And the best way to do it is to actually get your foot through the door in an industry too. Or you could just sit at home and just like take a chill, I guess. <laughs> but I was like, I just want to meet people. And it's definitely going to give a good footing to get a full-time job as a data scientist or machine learning engineer. Because even, even then I heard like at the time, it was still like, it's not very common to get a job out the door of university as a data scientist, right? That just isn't... It's not very common. Well, it wasn't very common like a few years ago, at least the way I saw it as a, a, a graduate student, I didn't think it was very common at all. So I wanted to, to at least increase my chances in whatever way I could. And so I thought an internship in the field would be very helpful. Yeah. And would you recommend this to um, most practitioners to kickstart their career now? Would should they go look for that full-time job or should they actually do an internship during studying while they can, or has, has this changed? Well, if you're in university, you haven't had a full-time job ever. I think, yeah, trying to look for a data science internship could be very useful. It's very nice, at least to know what you could potentially be getting into. But like, I guess if you're already practicing in the industry, there's a lot of people I know. In fact, this is probably the more common route of like people from different walks of life in the tech industry, they transition into data science which is also great and probably also 
might provide just as much, if not even more benefit too, because you're now bringing the background you have in like, let's say software engineering or data engineering. You can literally get into this from like, I don't know, astrophysics or something like that. And all of this can now culminate and you can use this kind of like your back pocket or a, a unique weapon in actually understanding and just dealing with data and whatever problem you're dealing with now. So yeah, I guess if you're in your school, you know, and you really just want to get to know like what's there, what machine learning has to offer or data science in general, then yeah, go for an internship. But if you're in the industry too, if you're in the industry, I would say, yeah, I mean, you, at that point, I think, you know, just interacting with these data scientists and machine learning engineers, like what they do and just like try to see if you can kind of get yourself involved in just more data related work. That said, I will put a caveat to this on data science internships. The term data science and the term machine learning engineer, right now I'm using it interchangeably, but in many places, like in some places, including like where I currently work at, like GOAT, it's, it is kind of interchangeable, but in many other places, I would say that these two terms are very separate. When you look at data science, it's such a broad term where if you go for a data science internship and you ask somebody what they did, some people will say they did like, only data analysis and other people would say they only did like machine learning and some people like myself did a good combination of both i would say and because of these wildly different experiences that you have in a data science internship there is a good chance that you may or may not be let down <laughs> and it's really easy to just like judge the entire field just for that like three month span that you were there as an intern which is unfortunate because like many people just like they say it's not worth being a data scientist because you know all i did was this this work you know pointing to like whatever work they did and i'm like well that's not all that the field has to offer but i mean i guess like everybody's opinions are shaped by their experiences so so more power to you i guess yeah that's fine you're not wrong then let's talk about that a bit data science what a data the role data scientist i've just accepted it to be an umbrella term because when I came out of, of my master's, my first role was as a computer vision engineer. And when I was speaking to other data scientists, they called themselves data scientists and data science was more popular than being called a computer vision engineer, right? And if you call yourself data scientist, you seem to get more, maybe more views on your articles as opposed to calling yourself a computer vision engineer. But essentially I felt like I was getting maybe overlooked by not using the umbrella term data scientist, because that's what people are more familiar with. That's what Google probably ranked more than a computer vision engineer. So I started putting data scientists and machine learning in my articles and in my titles, as opposed to the specific function I was doing within data science, which was computer vision, right? I was working with image and video data, as opposed to doing analysis and working with numeric data, which I've never done which is like a whole different world to me. So I feel, sometimes I feel like, am I a data scientist? But then I just remember, just accept the fact that it's an umbrella term. Have you ever experienced this where you just question your, your place within the field? Yeah, it's more like, to me, I, I just think these words are just words. Like people will just throw these words around. They're just terms. It's like, okay, like it was a statistician and now we're like machine learning engineers before that. But wait, but in between we had something called big data engineers and whatnot. And it's like, Okay, like, what are we now? It's just so hard to, to know. It, essentially, those terms might change, those names change, but our roles itself, like the core role doesn't change. The core field doesn't change. The foundations don't change, which is probably more important than anything else than like any kind of PR related to the, to, to like the title of these fields. 
But I will say though, yeah, in in, the, in regards to like where it actually does have like a an effect is like you writing articles or you applying for a job. Like, do you apply as a data scientist? Do you apply as a computer vision engineer? That is like a very real dilemma. And I think hopefully that's why in the future we we would be transitioning to those very kind of specific terms too. And those specific terms will get the value that they deserve in terms of like, okay, this is what the term means. It's very specific, which is a good thing than just a broad umbrella term of just bucketing everybody. Like we're all engineers, right? Technically, yes, but also like an engineer could be so many things. And the same thing is now with data science. We're all data scientists, sure. But like what we do with data and what kind of data we work with and how we solve the kinds of problems that we solve are very different. And that distinguishes us within the field. You spoke about using sort of like your background knowledge in other aspects that do not relate to maybe data science and using that as a unique factor when you come into data science. So I noticed you were a web developer, a full stack developer, a new HTML, JavaScript. Am I correct or was it PHP? Back before I even like understood some of these web frameworks, I did a lot of dabbling into like full stack web development. I like programming. So I wanted to be this like developer when I got out of college. That did not happen clearly, but it is definitely something I was interested in. And in fact, my very, very first website, I was like, I'm going to hand code my website from scratch. And I did. And it was fun. Was it a shoddy job? Yeah. If you look at it, it literally looks like something that came out of like 1995. But was it fun? Was it exhilarating? Was it a learning experience? Absolutely, right? So yeah, getting into at least programming then was, I wouldn't say it was like a waste at all because, well, even now it's not like, admittedly, it's not like I use all that web development at work. I think the only time I have used any kind of like of that web stuff, like in my data science role is when I'm like trying to build like certain tools for people, like to, if I need data labeled, right, I need to build a labeling tool and sure I could use like third-party tools too, but you can also put something up very quick and dirty with some like minor HTML and maybe some CSS knowledge and JavaScript knowledge that you might have, and which I had like some, I had functional knowledge now, now that I remember, I used to be pretty good. Now I'm like good enough to, to like put these things together. So I guess it like comes in handy. It's, it's just like a nice thing to have in my back pocket at the moment, not groundbreaking revolutionary to my, to my work today, but it is definitely fun. Would you say it created a very solid foundation on which you build your data science or whatever programming skills you have that's related to data science today? I have a very formal education when it comes to data science. So like I've come the traditional route of like, you know, I go to school and I actually study computer science and then I go to grad school and I actually study math. And now I'm working using both of like what I learned in grad school as well as what I learned in my undergrad in my job. And I also do that on YouTube and I teach in general. So in that sense, I would say uh, it's as foundational as you can probably get from a very formal education standpoint. But this is not the only way. In fact, anybody who's older than myself probably didn't have an opportunity to do this because the, these, these universities at the time, I don't think they even had these like machine learning specific degrees or data science specific degrees, right? They might have had like, they might be stats people. Typically, like a lot of people I know are like math majors who are in the field, which is definitely like something I would have also considered if I was like studying and doing it over again, I probably would have also done like a major in stats and computer science if I could. But I, it kind of turned out fine for me anyways. 
But even if you don't have any of those fields too, and you just like put in the effort to, you know, just either study on your own or maybe use like certain online resources too, I think you can get quite a bit of the way there. It might just take some time, but the, I would say the only thing is the only issue is that you need to know what you're looking for in order to have like a good starting point for any kind of thing that you're trying to learn. Because if you have a good starting point, then you can learn to learn yourself. And that's how you kind of need to progress in the field. But if you don't have that good starting point, then it's very hard. And this is one of the lessons you learn in grad school too. I'd say in undergrad and all of like traditional schooling, you kind of know that there is the concept and you know, your teacher might teach you this concept and you kind of just got to learn that concept alone. But then when you come to grad school, it's like you need to learn how to learn on your own. So you're given a starting point, but that's about it. Not really much context, but then you practice based on like fundamental tools you already know, and you're able to get to some other point. And then you just keep progressing from there. And I think that that skill of learning to learn is very important in your field as like any kind of data science practitioner, whether it's like, I'm sure you would know this too, as like a computer vision engineer or as a machine learning engineer. Or just in general, I'd say dealing with data, because like there's no like very fixed way to deal with certain problems here. And it's always an evolving field where you need to just keep learning. Even your foundational knowledge needs to keep growing. The field moves at the speed of innovation. And every month I feel left behind. I have to dedicate loads of hours just to catch up. But let's, let's talk about learning how to learn. What learning techniques has worked best for you? Because you seem to do a very great job try to do a very good job. <laughs> but like, I guess like the learning technique for me, at least these days, is probably something called the Feynman technique. Richard Feynman, famous mathematician slash physicist, amazing professor as well. And according to him, you can basically learn anything, which is absolutely true. And the way you do that is like, you have like a very complex concept. It could be like calculus. It could be anything, whatever it is, right? And you try to write it down and explain it on a piece of paper, right? And you have to make sure that those explanations are devoid of jargon as much as possible. Like if you can break down an explanation of a very complex topic into like an entire like explanation without using jargon and without also losing detail, then it just shows that you've understood a concept. But if you feel like, oh, you're using jargon within your explanation too, and you're not able to explain that jargon, that means that there are holes in your explanation. And then you need to further, you know, try to try to dig into those jargon terms. This actually comes very, very apparent when you're reading research papers, because I can't tell you how many times I think you've done this too, of like, you read a paper for the first time, right? And then you, you understand barely half of what's going on because there's so many words in that paper, you just do not understand, right? And then what do you do? You look at those words and then you Google like what those words are. And then you get into this rabbit hole of like Googling words and then Googling words and those words and then Googling forever, right? Until eventually you'll be like, okay, I now understand what's going on because I've broken down the jargon of this entire paper. So I would say learning technique is like, just make sure that when you are explaining yourself, make sure you understand every word that you're trying to say or trying to write in your explanation. And I think that will go a long way. And that is called the Richard Feynman technique. Yeah, it's called like the Feynman technique in general. Okay. Yeah. All right. It seems like I've been doing that without knowing what it's called. When I will take a complex topic and I'll decompose it into little subsections and make sure I understand every subsection that I can write an article on it. It sounds time consuming. It is time consuming. But from your perspective, is it time consuming? 
It is, but it, when you're coming to the fields of like mathematics, especially, I'd say especially mathematics and especially like in science fields, it becomes increasingly important because like, I don't know, let's say that you're, you know, and if you're working, especially professionally, right, you know that you're going to be talking to a lot of people who do not know data science, anything about data, right? And if you built this like very fancy schmancy model and you want to explain what it does and how it does things the way it does to people like product managers or people who are in charge of projects, you need to be able to explain that in a way that does not use technical terms like very technical terms, right? You can use like maybe some technical terms, but to the extent that you think that your audience will know, like your audience being like these people who you're interacting with at work, right? So I think it just becomes, yeah, all the more so important. It's in the same with students too. It's not like you can explain all of that jargon of like any kind of like Bayesian statistics with more like you know, oh, oh my gosh, like talking about posteriors and priors, like everybody knows what they are, right? Like you need to break that down as well into like understandable forms and words. Is it time consuming? Yes, but it's also required, especially for interacting with people. Maybe like, even if you're writing a technical paper though, like I, I would think that you would need to understand what's going on too. But I know there's a lot of people who probably don't, they'll probably use like blanket terms that they don't completely understand. But in general, I'd say like as a rule of thumb, it, it makes more sense to, to understand what you're saying. And also, even though it takes time to do so, it is worth it. Yeah. Especially if you plan on having a sort of a long career within this field, learning how to learn, not just learning what is currently trendy will probably get you further. I want to move into your profession. You're talking to me today, but what do you exactly do at Gold? In fact, what is gold? That's a dope name for a company, but what is gold? Goat is the greatest of all time. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's a sneaker marketplace where you can buy and sell shoes. Typically, it's like more luxury shoes like Yeezys and Jordans. But yeah, and it's over there that I am a full-time machine learning engineer, technically. Yes. Not a data scientist. I mean, yeah, technically I'm a data scientist, but like, it, I mean, at specifically at Goat, it kind of goes both ways because we do the same thing. And it's literally just, in fact, my name is technically like my title right now is data scientist, but I was told that it will transition into machine learning engineer very shortly. Which one do you prefer? Machine learning engineer is definitely more on point, but personally, like I don't care. Like it's same work I'm doing. It's not like it's any other, any different, I guess to the more technical eyes, like people will be like, oh, I have more street cred now. Because like people look at data scientists these days, I feel like, oh, you're a data scientist. That means you could possibly be doing anything. And then they don't really know what I'm doing in general. So I feel like I personally don't care because my work itself is as engaging as it was before. But I guess for, if I tell people, people would be like, oh yeah, machine learning, that's a buzzword. And you're a machine learning engineer, another buzzword together. That must be amazing. So why not? I can brag about it as a machine learning engineer. Exactly. You've explained what Golden is, is a sneaker marketplace. Then what do you do day to day as a machine learning engineer? What does your role entail? So I'd say like 80, 90% of my job is to like actually work with machine learning models in some way. It's quite, quite very machine learning heavy as a role. A lot of the time too, though, I am also 
you know, I'm wearing multiple hats kind of too, where I'm also just trying to like do a lot of these analyses to see, you know, where we can, you know, make it make it like, let's say shoes go faster to the customer or like where we can save money ourselves, which, you know, companies in general care about. It's like a wide range of like combination of like analyses and, and actual modeling, which is, I think it's like a healthy combination of both of them. Because I know like in some other roles in various companies, you'll find like, all right, I'm doing way too much more analysis than I wanted to do and not as much machine learning. A lot of the, the gripe of the word data science, especially in some other companies too, that come to mind. Okay. Let's zoom into your role as a, the more machine learning working with models. Let's zoom into that. What type of models or machine learning algorithms are you working with? A lot of the time, I mean, I... That there are so many kinds of models. And I'm just going to speak more generally and not so specific to my work. But just in, if you want to know like the kind of machine learning model strategies that I use in general, I have actually done some videos on them too. Typical like regression classification models. But like, I think one that was like probably super interesting to me is like quantile regression. It's a model where you actually can, you know, typically in a, in a normal statistical model, right? Let's say you want to predict the price of a house, right? So you put like, you know, you have these features and you say, okay, I'm going to predict that this house price is, I don't know, $700,000. I'm just giving a random number, right? But you can actually get a kind of confidence associated with that regression or that output by displaying what, what is the confidence that there's a 50% chance that the model that the actual next house price is $700,000, but you can also get like the 40th percentile quantile, which is like, what is the chance that this model's predicts, like, let's say that's, I don't know, 680,000. So that's like, okay, there's a 40%, there's like over a 60% chance, I should say, that it is over this $680,000. And then you can also get this 50th percentile is 700,000. Maybe the 60th percentile is like 705,000. And so you can get like a bound of like, all right, if, if the model is like very, very confident in its predictions, those bounds would be smaller, right? But if the model is not confident in its predictions, those bounds would be much larger. And so it leads to a lot of like very interesting applications and also like better understanding of how well your model is performing. But yeah, I've also described that a lot in, in, on some of my YouTube videos too, because I think it's a very, very interesting modeling strategy. Yeah. One thing I'm going to do is for a link to your YouTube channel. So anyone watching this or listening to this can just click on, look in the description and go over to AJ's YouTube channel. Like I said, at the beginning of this, your YouTube channel is so useful for pretty much most of the things you would find in the field of machine learning. I use it for NLP, but you're talking about more numerical analysis regression, right? So it. You cover such a wide, wide array of topics on your channel, but I want to ask um, a question more, more to uh, your career. How did you get your role at Gold? How, how was that process like? Yeah, that was fun. Okay. So after grad school, I wanted to interview specifically for data scientist roles, right? And it was around, I'd say, what was this? 2019. That was when I finished my graduate degree. It was like May, 2019. A few months before then, I've been like continuously trying to interview with a lot of places. And actually, even much before that, I would say in 2018, like a solid year before I graduated, I was contacted by somebody at HR at GOAT. And they were like, hey, would you be open for an opportunity? 
And to them, I said at the time I would not be, but I asked if I could just like contact them when I graduate because I would be open to a full-time opportunity then. And they're like, yeah, totally. Yeah, whenever you, whenever you want to come back to us. And I, so basically that sat in the back burner for a while. I started interviewing with a lot of other companies and then I graduated. And then after I graduated, I really started, you know, trying to get into the hunt of like, okay, full-time job opportunities. And then I just remembered like, oh, hey, wait, I, I emailed this person at Goat and they said they can, I can contact them whenever I want to. So I was just like, I literally responded to that thread like 11 months later. And I was like, hey, do you still have an opportunity? And then they were like, oh yeah, let me see. Let me see what I got for you. And then immediately they put in, me into in direct contact with like, a, like the hiring manager for the data science team at the time. And I was like, all right, he likes me on the phone. Then they basically said, okay, we'll set you up for like an on-site interview like next week. And so that next week I showed up. And then at the time though, I think I accidentally arrived way too early, like four hours early. It was my fault because I didn't see, like, I think I was looking at a different time zone. It was an issue on my part. And so I was like, okay, I got too much, too much time now. So I basically went on a small little, there was like a little hike behind like the the office so I just like went on that hike and came back and then I showed up for the interview and it was it was great I mean everybody was like super nice super chill about it and that's kind of how I got to go man so I'm gonna talk more about that where you just spoken about but four hours I've heard of people showing up like 30 minutes early an hour but four hours early. I'm very punctual I'm very punctual you're, t- you're taking it way to the time <laughs> I bet. Did you mention that to the inter- to the people interviewing just to show them how keen you were? No, uh, yeah, I, I I think I did like bring it up at the time. Definitely, like the the front desk person was like the only person who was there when I showed up, and then she was like, "Welcome back," and I was like, "Thank you." <laughs> <laughs> so, how was that interview process like? Was it daunting? How was it like? I'd say, well, in general, just to, again, I'm, I just want to speak more generally, so it's more useful to an audience too. I'd say these data science and machine learning interviews can vary a lot. Like I have, I have been in so many different types of interviews and interview formats that I feel like there is no specific format that, you know, maybe like software engineer, it's like more rigorous and very, it's more streamlined and like, you kind of know what you're expecting with data science, not at all. At least like when I interviewed like a few years ago, because like there would be times where it's like, sometimes I would have like three or four back-to-back interviews, some of them related to case studies, some of them at least one related to programming, at least one related to mathematics, like pure mathematics, at least one related to just SQL, at least one related to like, just like, again, probably either another case study or like programming concepts in general, just talking through an idea, like an actual product case interview. Yeah, I'd say it's like a good combination of each of those facets. And... I remember like some of them have four rounds. Some of them, I think like one, one, of the, one or two of these companies had like eight rounds. And I was just like, yeah, on the same day. And I was there from like the morning till the evening. And I was like, by the end of it, like my throat is so hoarse. But again, I feel like this is, again, a lot of interviews probably in other fields too are like this too. But specifically for data science, I just found it very interesting that even though there were all of these kind of formats, they all kind of touched on like, you know, the very core fields I just mentioned, like, you have programming, you have mathematics, you have some of it is like actual like probability theory. Some of it is also like statistical interview because you need that for like data analysis. And some of it is there is like a SQL based interview because you use a lot of SQL and another like Python based interview or 
in general, like an algorithms interview, but I chalk it up to like being a Python interview. But yeah, you can kind of chalk it up to being like these, these core facets that they try to test out just in multiple different varying rounds. And the thing is, all those core facets that you mentioned are essentially roles in themselves. They're literally roles where they focus on either just SQL or just Python, or maybe doing web stuff with a bit of products focused. But data scientists, machine learning people, we get the wrong end of the stick because again, we've spoken about this, the term is not definitive. It just data science is an umbrella term. And that trickles down into the interview process where you're getting, maybe you feel like you're getting an interview process, which will be similar to a software engineering interview where you have to learn algorithms or whatnot, or you might be getting an interview process that's similar to one that is a web developer type of interview or researchers or, so that broad definition definitely affects the interview process, which also affects how you prepare for interviews. Cause like you said, you have different interviews back to back and you're an exceptional individual cause you are able to grasp so many topics. Well, for myself, I was sweating. I was, I was suffering cause I had to do NLP one day, then I had to do computer vision the next, then do some numerical analysis, then geospatial analysis. And I'm like, damn, am I going to get a job? <laughs> Lo and behold, did you get the job? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm not sure that they might test you on all those things, but I mean, we're all humans at the end of the day. We can't be perfect at everything. And so I, I'm hoping at least depending on the institution, they'll focus on some areas more than others. It depends on the kind of company they are, because like, you know, if you've interviewed to right in multiple locations, you know, like some companies are very, very like they need a programmer. They need somebody who knows how to code, but then they should be able to kind of do like, you know, the computer vision work or the machine learning work. Right. But then the, you have the opposite of the spectrum where it's like, you know, 95% of your job is going to be in like statistical modeling. So you need to know that. And then, yeah, if, even if you're like, okay, you know how to write a for loop, you know how to create like a basic class in Python. Okay. You're good. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. So it really depends. Like they'll probably rigorously test you on both just to understand your limits, but I'm sure like for many institutions, they would have like, all right, some of these are weighted more than others. Yeah. Still sticking on the professional side of things. What does career success mean to you? Wow. That's a very broad and I broad question that I absolutely love answering. Career success. Is there something that you would wake up every day for and you would do for free? You know, what gets you up in the morning, right? Have you found that? Like, if you ask yourself this question and you think that you have a good answer for it, then congrats. Like, that's great. Professionally, I'd say, like, you're able to make money off of it. Fantastic. If yeah. you think you're starting on, you're able to monetize it later. Also fantastic. But yeah, I would say that is career success to me. Nice. And I was going to speak about the process. I want to talk about your YouTube channel for a bit and also your presence, your personal brand online. The videos you make, like I've mentioned several times, are very good. What is your secret? What is the process you go through when creating one single video? Yeah, there's a lot, especially like, I guess for my like more technical videos, which is definitely a lot of the past videos, it's a lot of like writing down, like everything that I I'm trying to at least think of right now. So it could be, let's just say, I don't know, it's a, it's a video on linear regression mathematics, right? Deriving the mathematics behind linear regression. 
So for that, well, first of all, I need to understand everything there is to about linear regression and then try to derive the math myself on a piece of paper. And then when I'm able to derive it on a piece of paper, I'm like, all right, this is, this is cool. But exactly how do I even start with these assumptions? Like, for example, we all know, like, okay, we want to minimize the, the ordinary least squares, but why are we minimizing the ordinary least squares? Like, what's the point of doing that? I didn't mention this in my videos before because like, this is not something I had originally thought of that much at the time, but honestly, it's like, all right, if you want to know why you're doing this, well, if you derive like the maximum likelihood estimation of like some of these parameters, assuming like linear regression, then you will see that, you know, in the end you will arrive that, you know, Hey, if you want to estimate those parameters in a linear regression, you need to be minimizing specifically the least squares function. And I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So I like understanding and breaking these concepts down in that way, at least for my own reference, even if I don't mention a lot of this in the video, to me is like very important and a part of that process of just like coming up with these very technical videos. Because with technical videos, you really want to make sure that you're saying the right thing, right? You got to do a lot of fact checking. So it just takes time. The research takes time. The fact checking takes time. Recording takes no time. Easy, easy peasy lemon squeezy, right? Especially for my case, like where in back in the days when I was not showing my face, I mean, I don't record, right? I just show, I, I edit a lot. Editing is crazy, but the recording, not so much. But yeah, I, I guess like now I'm probably going to talk about it too, but like I have like plans for the future to make the mathematical videos in the future just so much more easier to make because I got like this Wacom tablet, you know, the kind of tablet that um, Sal Khan from Khan Academy uses. So there's this like black screen and then you can write mathematics on. Yeah, so I got one of those for myself now. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be game changing for the way that I teach mathematics too. And also how I plan to make these, you know, writing equations and copying it from Microsoft Word and then creating an image of it and then pasting it on a YouTube video screen and doing that for every single step of a mathematics of proof is hard. I'll tell you that it's, it's just annoying, tedious work. And I've done this for so long and I don't know why I did it for so long when I could just like get a tablet, write it out on screen and finish the job. This is also like why the turnaround time for my videos for so long. In addition to all the research and fact checking, I had actually need to edit a lot. And it takes a lot of time to edit things that, you know, if you don't have your face on it, but this space does a lot of things. Like you're on camera, people will watch the face. Fine, that's easy editing. But when you have to edit things without your face on it, like these people who do animations and whatnot, that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. So all this process kind of culminates. I, I the fastest I think I've ever been able to do this at a streak was like once in two weeks. That's like absolute maddening speed for me. And I'm also like, I don't have editors. I'm, I'm just a one-man show. I, I record on my, my 2013 MacBook Pro that I've been using yeah. forever. Yeah, it's the screen is destroyed right now. You should see it. It's like degraded at this point. And I got a new MacBook just like two days ago. Okay, upgrade. Just upgrade. upgrade. New tablet, new MacBook. It's going to be, the process is going to be shortened, streamlined, or videos. Why did you decide to start showing your face on your channel? Why did it? That's a great question too. I guess like before I just, I didn't want people to be distracted by my face at the time. 
Yeah, I think that's like the main reason. And also the second main reason is probably like I used to live in a dorm. Well, not a dorm, like in a university apartment. So it's like lighting, it was not good. I couldn't, I didn't have money to afford anything either. I don't have like a ring light that's kind of on my face at the moment. I didn't have any of this. Like, what is this, this thing doing in front of me, right? Like no, no camera whatsoever. Again, no money, no camera, no money, no mic, no money, no light. What are you going to do? You're not, no money, student debt. You're not speaking into the microphone on your on your Mac, just like closely whispering into it anymore. Yeah, exactly. Just doing giving everybody an ASMR show. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's honestly just the money. It's like you need money to to buy things, and I didn't have any of that. So I and it didn't cut, and it was very distracting. Like if I'm showing a lot of math on the screen. It's like, it's very distracting, like to have my face pop in. Hey, everybody, while you're like deriving like this huge equation. Yeah, as it, there's a channel that doesn't show their face when they do maths or explanation. And that's free blue, one brown. Yeah. It's his face, which is very good. Well, I'm not saying it's not good that he doesn't show his face. It's just his videos aren't very good. I was also going to say, what are your aspirations? Okay, you got this new, new gears, new laptop, new tablet. What's your aspiration for your YouTube channel? So right now I kind of want to treat it as more of a business, I guess. So I think I had the opportunity in August to, to kind of meet a lot of these YouTube content creators. And I got to see like how, like, what are their, what, what are their main streams of like, not just income, but also content creation. Mm. And I realized like, sure, they're all YouTubers, like a YouTube content creation house or group that we had, but they all do like so many different things. Like some of them are on LinkedIn, some of them are on Substack. Some of them are in medium. Some of them are YouTube only. Some of them just have so many like very unique skills in just like doing what they do. And I was like, okay, this is actually something I've wanted to do too. Like beyond just YouTube and not beyond letting just the YouTube algorithm control literally everything that I do and say, I'd rather, you know, kind of expand more, more go, going forward. Yeah, because like now that's kind of why like I started on medium. That's why I'm going to probably start Substack very soon too. That's also why, you know, I'm just like thinking of different ways to share my content too. It, it's not just like always has to be in a video format. There are some videos, some content that I have in mind that's just way better when, you know, when I either like talk about it on a podcast or when I like, you know, write it in a blog. It's just a lot more tenable in that way. And, you know, you can see how like you can think about content in very different ways, depending on the medium in which it's presented. So I feel like it's a good next step in evolving my content creation, and education, sharing abilities and teaching abilities too. Because now it's like, okay, I can have this one concept, whatever it is, it could be like Bayesian statistics and how I teach that on computer, like a video versus how I teach it on a blog post, like writing it on a blog post versus how I want to display it in a newsletter. It'd be very different from each other, right? It's not going to be like just same copy paste. It can't be either. They're completely different mediums completely different kinds of people, completely different attention spans of people. So you got to kind of like think in those, that direction too. I think it's great for growth, like personally, like for my brand growth, I think it'd be like wonderful. And it's also like a good way for me to explore different media that I'd never explored before. Like I'd just been sticking to YouTube, right? Like how do I know that another medium is not going to be good too? I'm going to continue YouTube, but I also want to like explore different creative outlets as well. That's also why I got the tablet too. It's like, you know, this could be a real game changer, but I don't know it until I try it. Exactly. And I do resonate with the fact of creating different sort of content on different platforms because I used to just focus on medium, but now I'm thinking, okay, 
YouTube, start a podcast, start doing more YouTube videos, start posting more on LinkedIn and maybe start doing newsletters. And it's all essentially what you're describing is sort of creating that content and en- content engine that essentially you can create a content and spin it out to different platforms where it's appropriate. I followed you on, on um, Medium. Do you follow back? Did you follow back? No, I'm very selective for my followers. Now 28 followers now. <laughs> but, gee, I don't know if that's supposed to be patronizing or... <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you. Let me, let me give you a tip. With Medium, followers means nothing. I've got like several thousands and I, I could get like 50 views on an article. It okay. Followers don't, doesn't equate to views. Is it the same on YouTube? I said, I'm, I'm in the YouTube game now. So can you, if you have high followers, do you tend to have more views on your videos? There are videos that are duds, but I'd say like, it's probably better than what you described with Medium. I mean, there is definitely like a core, there should be a correlation with your sub count as well as your view count. But there are videos that like, I think at least the way that YouTube has changed over the last years, like the last decade that YouTube has been out and not, it's been out for since 2006, so it's longer than a decade, but it has changed so much as a platform over time. I remember before, like back in the day, if you subscribe, then you would get a notification for every single video or content that somebody that you're the person you subscribe to posted. But these days, that's no longer the case. I think the subscribe button is just there for show. There's a little bell button too. Yeah, kind of ish. There's a little bell button right next to it now that you click to notify you, which will notify you. But then even if you don't click it for certain videos that you're not even subscribed to, you will get notifications for sometimes. It happens like that. That that's that's kind of like YouTube being like intelligent or intelligent, quote unquote, uh, about like serving you content. And that's kind of why it's like you're not going to see everybody that you subscribe to in your like You'll see it in your subscription box. Like if you literally go to subscribers or like subscribe content and you, you can see that content, but it's not going to like pop up to you on your homepage as a notification or as a recommendation either. Like it's typically just based on whatever the last videos that you've watched are. I think like if I watch a video on blue whales, I'm just going to see a lot of blue whale content recommended to me on YouTube, even though I've never, never seen those channels. I'd say it's like more these days, YouTube is more geared towards like recommending and discovery mm. over just like traditional subscribe and get like content from there, though that is also there. But you have to if you're not actively watching those subscriptions that you have subscribed for, those are considered almost like dead subscriptions at some point. And YouTube is like, OK, we're not just going to recommend you content from that anymore. Can I just say one thing? Your writing is very good because I came across your article and it's very lengthy, very detailed. Almost as detailed as a video. I can see that coming through. Very well-written post. And it's your first, that was your first article on Medium, right? This, you would have got one. Okay. But you're not new to this because you were a top writer in 2018 on Quora, right? So you're not a total novice. You're kind of ahead of the game. Right? You were a top writer on Quora, one of the top question answering platforms on the internet today. Talk to me about that. Yeah, that was, I can't believe you, you dug into my, my, my stuff so much that you, you uncovered that, but thank you for uncovering that. Yeah. I was like a top writer in 2018. I did write a lot of, I wanted an outlet for like technical content and technical writing at the time. And it was at that time. I think this was even before, like a little around the time. Sure. I had my YouTube channel, but I wasn't like posting super regularly on it, but I wanted an outlet to just like answer questions and actually get into the habit of like writing some technical content in some form. And I thought, okay, this is a way to answer to the community. 
kind of, you know, somebody asks a question, I will answer that question. I've kind of been practicing too of like, okay, before my answers used to be so long winded and then they became very crisp, very concise as I want to communicate in that way and bring the point across as straightforward as possible. I do think like personally, that has helped me. It's helped me talk to people the way I do today. But um, Quora itself, it's, it's very hard to grow. I'm not going to lie with you. It's, it is like, un unless like maybe, you know, I add it to my pipeline now of like this, this content engine that you were describing. Maybe if I add it to my content engine, it might work. I haven't tried all the features that there are today. I stopped years ago before they even had spaces introduced in Quora, which is like, yeah, spaces and also before like blog posts became like a huge thing too. So all I did was just literally answer questions. What I would have liked to see, at least at the time, was that answers were not monetized, but questions were. So there are so many, so many cases where, you know, what was really disheartening is like I go on Quora and I see basically explaining the wonders of the world of neural networks, like any kind of question that was related to that. And my answer to that, which was so detailed, like a thesis, would get like, I don't know, 500 views. And then the next question is like, why do we pick our nose? Gets like a million views. So that's the problem that I used to see in the past with Quora. Maybe, maybe it's different now as a platform. It probably definitely is different because I haven't touched the platform in years. But yeah, after I got that, like, that, that top writer, it, it felt good. It was nice. But then it's like, all right, I'm not really growing on this platform. And I, it, I don't know. I feel like some of the questions are, I'm like repeating myself a lot because it's just like, literally I'm writing the same kind of content again and again. So it's not intellectually fulfilling either, which to me is very important. Like if it's not intellectually fulfilling, it's not making me money. It's not growing my audience. What am I doing here? Right? So that's the only reason I took a step back from Quora, but you know, always there to reassess if the situation's changed and probably has. You know what? Let's take a step into Quora, but a bit differently than you started on Quora again. Let's actually maybe repurpose some of the content, some of your most viewed content. You can copy and paste them and turn them into Medium articles. That could be a, a very good way to start gearing up your Medium origins. And you already have, as in, you have loads of content on Quora. So you can literally just at least spin out 10, 20 articles. That's true. I also do know though, like, I think my, the, what I know today is way more different than what I knew four years ago or five years ago when I wrote these articles. So that'll be fun. Like just trying to, yeah, that was 2018 was four years ago. And I think that's like when I stopped writing Quora. So in those four years, I mean, like I've gotten into the fields of machine learning quite, quite deep. So maybe like I could, yeah, at least for topic ideas, I think going back to my old Quora answers is a great idea. And then kind of like reformatting some of my answers, updating based on my current knowledge of it and then reposting it. I think that would be a great, a great way to start for sure. Time saver as well. I was going to ask, where do you see the future of data science and machine learning heading to within the next five years? Is it I, I can't really speak so much to the research aspect of it anymore, but I could say that at least from an industry standpoint, I feel like we're definitely getting to the world of ML ops where like not just focusing on straight up machine learning models, but also focusing on tools that are required to productionize and build these machine learning models and use these machine learning models by other people, which I think is absolutely extremely important because like, what's the point of you building something if nobody's there to use it? Admittedly, like maybe it's there for you to learn. That's great. But you also want people to use it so that you can figure out what's wrong with your system or what's right with it. And then keep, keep that process of getting feedback updating your model, making it usable, 
getting feedback again. And that, super, that loop continues. So I would say kind of more exploration into just building supportive tools to support like data science and a data science, like machine learning models specifically, I should say. And also, I think, again, I'm speaking very specifically to the industry, a more of a, like an understanding by different industry professionals of what data science can bring to the table. Because I think there is probably in certain companies, maybe some, some companies where it would be nice if they had like, okay, everybody kind of understands at least a little bit where machine learning can fit into their pipelines. And so if they understand at least like where it can fit, then they wouldn't hesitate to actually talk to other data scientists and machine learning engineers and be like, hey, can you help us solve this problem? Because we think you can help us here. Instead of like, you know, if they didn't know it in the first place and they wouldn't even ask, right? This is also like kind of the, the inspiration of the blog post that I posted on Medium, that solving problems the machine learning way, which kind of does go into like how a machine learning engineer would solve a problem and how you can apply the same kind of problem to solving any other problem that you are trying to solve. In the end, whether you're a computer vision engineer or whether I'm a machine learning engineer or anybody else in the world is like a sales marketing professional, in the end, we all solve problems. And the way that we think of problems and approach problems might be slightly different, but here's our perspective from like the machine learning engineering perspective of how we solve problems. And hopefully that could be useful to you. Yeah. And one thing I was going to mention is we're talking about the industry. How about yourself, AJ? Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Myself. Okay. Yeah. So for me, I, like I said before, I love education. I do want to segue into like a, an educational content creator role where I am like doing like, whether it's like online courses, online teaching, or, you know, becoming like an influence within the space of like machine learning as a teacher or an educator, and even as a mentor. So I definitely want to get into kind of the educational space moving forward. Definitely going in that direction, for sure. That's the idea. Yeah. Okay. So let's ask, let's, let's go into some fun questions. We could, we could relax now. <laughs> let's go. Let's go. All right. Favorite movie. Favorite movie. Anything by Pixar. I love animation, except for cars. <laughs> what's, your, what's your favorite cars? Everything. Oh, I... It's just like, I can't watch cars. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't watch cars. It's, it's fine. I guess it's fine. Like it, it does well in the box office maybe, but I cannot watch cars, but it's, yeah. Fair Let's just say that. I thought you were going to give me something more sci-fi, something with AI. No, I love, I like, I like animation. I appreciate animation. Toy Story is a masterpiece, by the way. One of the first like 3D animations created in 1990, back in like 1995 phenomenal masterpiece so if i pick one it's toy story in the franchise of toy story maybe toy story 3 but other than that not cars oh. <laughs> okay favorite memory that you can remember right now favorite memory Ooh, there's a let's see a favorite memory that is such a hard question gosh i i guess it would have to be like you know, when, when I read that I, my paper, like my first paper that I did got accepted into a publication, I think that's like a, it's a very like, oh my gosh, I feel smart. That's an achievement. That is a very massive achievement while you were still an undergrad as well. Yeah. That is a very big achievement. Okay. Best career memory. Best career memory. 
I just started my career like not too long ago. So I'm not too sure. I would say like it does, it doesn't have to be career as in like work work or does it have to be YouTube too? It could, it, it could be YouTube. YouTube's part of your career, so YouTube. Okay. Or yeah, I... In general, too, like I'd say it's like one of my one of my posts. Can I just like talk about a post where I think I had like one of the creators of the the creator of Chromebook commented on my my answer on well he, he I think he like liked and commented or something on one of my answers on Chromebooks or something like that, and I was like, yeah, I made it, and this was like <laughs> maybe like twenty like twenty sixteen maybe. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, mama, I made it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, Mama, I made it. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry for this, but worst career memory. Honestly, everything has been going just fine. So there's nothing bad to speak about just yet. But I think I'll have to keep you updated when, when stuff hits the fan. All right. So I want to ask another question. How did you get interested in playing the piano? How did that come about? Oh, wow. You, you, you dug into that too. Okay, cool. So the piano, the piano was, um, I was kind of like self-taught in the piano. I think it was 20. Ooh, when did I even start? I started in like, I started in 2008 actually. So I was like, when I was, yeah, I, I remember I was in eighth grade. I was like 13 years old or something like that. And I just like my dad actually had, he bought a piano when he was here. And when we were living in the United States, he actually bought a piano before I was born. And it was a pretty big, you know, ivory key piano. It, it, it had all the bells and whistles. The keys were heavy. They were, it was amazing. And he bought that like maybe 30 some, some 30 something years ago. He bought it once, never played it and just kept cleaning it since. And it became like just an heirloom sitting at the back of the house at some point. And then that piano moved with us to, to India. And then I was like, hey, you know what? One day I was like age 13 and I'm like, let me just play it. And I played it and I was, and I also had a cousin who kind of came over to my house and he played it too. He, he, he's kind of like a musician himself, but not necessarily a pianist, but he's a classical singer. And he just like played the piano. I was like, oh, so this thing can do stuff. Pretty cool. And then I just like, you know, after, after just the push, I was just like, okay, I bought my own piano books. I just started getting into, you know, just learning this for myself. So I'm, I'm very like rough around the edges at self-taught kind of piano player. Yeah, definitely can't play in any competitions now, especially because... Especially now, because I haven't played the piano in like half a decade because I, I left India and not pianos in India. It's in my parents' house and I'm here. But yeah, that I, I tried to like create videos. I have like another channel where I created some piano videos on, on it. Yeah. So it just, I just had some recordings. I remember my dad did some recordings, like two sessions in 2010, he recorded some things for me. And then in like 2014 as well. So I posted some of them on YouTube, but that's, that, that's such a, like a, I have, it's like so dusty right now. Even I haven't seen like the, the amazing quality that totally was not recorded on a potato of a <laughs> microphone, but yeah. Well, you're the second, uh, second or third practitioner that, practitioner that I've spoken to that plays the piano. That's actually a lot. Wow. Okay. <laughs> What's all with these piano playing practitioners that you're, that you're interviewing on your podcast? I don't know. It's, it's. It, I need, we need to do some sort of, uh, sort of analysis. Of course, see if there's a correlation between machine learning and piano playing at a very young age. Yeah, I'm successful practitioners. Is that something? I, when I have a kid, I need to buy them a piano and some data science books. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 
Oh my God, studies show that there's an 86% correlation between these two. So teach your kids how to play piano at the age of five if you want them to become machine learning engineers in the future. Exactly. You heard it first. Guaranteed. <laughs> first year. This has been such a fun conversation. It's, it's been exciting. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you for having me. This was amazing. Love, good love, love this. I always finish this conversation with one last question and it's, um, who should I speak to next? Oh gosh, that's a great question. So I actually have a few people in mind, depending on, depending on like whatever your interests are too. So if you want to talk about like the very big people, and there's also like the, like I'd say my peers in YouTube who I'm very infatuated with. So I guess like the say bigger people, maybe Cassie Kozarkoff, who is I think the chief Google or AI data scientist. Actually, then there's... I actually spoke to her. She, I, I, I did. messaged her on LinkedIn because she writes on media, right? So she does, yeah. And she, she has some good stuff. And I was like, hey, I would love to have you on my podcast. She was like, Richard, I have a lot of people and I'm, I'm going to put you on the list. So hopefully I'll circle back on that and we can maybe have something. That would be so great. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, that, that's a good... Because I'd say that she has an amazing way of breaking down literally like almost like a very complex machine learning concepts into like a data science for dummies kind of way. Like I've seen her explanations of very arcane statistical concepts that are so hard to explain. And she just like explains it like it's nothing. So again, as an educator, I look up to people like her and also look up to people like Sal Khan, Cod Academy. I think we, we just talked about him because he is like the revolutionary education style that I am also inspired by. And also another person is Grant Sanderson, which is three blue, one brown. Yeah, those three. And then in terms of like our peers, though, that, you know, probably you might also know is Nicholas Renaud, as well as Ritvik, Ritvik from Ritvik Math. So yeah, Nicholas Renaud, he's like, uh, I feel like these two kind of, we, we all like three of us kind of do like very, sim like I'd say they're the two most similar to the kind of content that I'm aiming for that I've seen. In terms of like, they're all technical. Both of them are technical people. Like Nicholas Renault, he explains the practical aspects of machine learning and codes everything out on screen, but also explains the theory that is required to understand that practical knowledge. And then you have the other side, which is like Ritzik Math, who does like, he is a very, he's a theoretician. He, he knows math, right? And he explains like machine learning concepts with like using practical examples. So it's kind of like, they do the same things, but in a very, like one is a theoretician, the other is a practitioner. And it's, I think it's like a good, a good mix of like people to have here too. If you're interested in like actual, like technical knowledge and technical content here. Man, I love the names of the people you've given me. Out of the six names you've given me, I've reached out to one and I'll be reaching out to the others. But man, AJ, this has been a very, very enlightening, fun, emphasis on the fun conversation you have such a, i'm here for fun Richmond. you have a very good presence about yourself you're charismatic and you're you're very knowledgeable and your story is inspirational and i've taken a lot of things away from this i am so happy that you have thank you thank you so much for having me here though Richmond. this was amazing you're welcome